Hi, this is Alyssa McNamara-Reed, and I will be your host for the next two hours. Allow me to introduce myself. I am a certified financial planner practitioner and an investment advisor. I am co-owner of McNamara Financial Services, Inc. in Marshfield, Massachusetts. McNamara Financial is a federally registered investment advisor, and by my definition anyway, is a true family business. We work with clients like you every day, regular people that need help making sound financial decisions or people that want one less thing to worry about. I work with clients for a fee based on assets that I manage or an hourly or flat fee for creating financial plans. I am not compensated via commissions unless I have the pleasure of helping someone with their insurance needs. There are some things worth paying for and perhaps a lifetime of financial security is one of them. I of course cannot guarantee that working with me will ensure a secure financial future. McNamara on Money has been a call-in talk radio show since 1990. I love hearing from listeners and there truly are no dumb questions. In fact, I like the simple questions because everyone should have the answer to those. Just don't call me asking for the next hot investment or which market is going to outperform this year. Number one, that's not the nature of this show. And number two, I have no idea. Any advice I give to a caller is meant to be generic in nature and should be verified with his or her own financial professionals. You will hear about a variety of topics on this show that relate to investments and personal finance. We try to cover topics that people can relate to regardless of their net worth or financial situation. And of course, we try to keep it interesting. I would crunch numbers for two hours or spreadsheet cash flows because I'm a total math nerd, but that wouldn't much make for good radio. Instead, I choose to educate people on topics surrounding big financial events in life, like marriage and divorce, kids in college, death of a loved one, career changes, and of course, retirement. I once heard that it is a smart man that knows what he doesn't know. I'm sure it was my dad that said that, and I'm also sure that it applies to women. That is why I invite guests onto my show that have expertise in different areas also related to personal finance. I feel it's important to note that the opinions of these professionals are not necessarily the opinions of McNamara Financial or any of its advisors. As long as we are on the subject of disclosure, I should note that while we may discuss investments and or markets on this show, that past performance is not indicative of future results. Thanks for tuning in. Good morning. You're listening to McNamara on Money, educating the investors of the South Shore and the Merrimack Valley on 95.9 FM WATD and also 980 AM W. AP in Lowell. Lowell. Good morning, everyone. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed with McNamara Financial Offices in Marshfield and Chelmsford, Massachusetts. I hope everyone is well and healthy and um, doing their best to uh, social distance, I guess. What else do you say these days? I don't know. Uh, but I hope everyone is well. And I think we have a pretty good and timely show lined up for this morning. We are going to be talking about... Um, legal issues that uh, sort of present themselves as more urgent during times like these as people are a little bit more aware of the need for planning um, if something were to happen to them during life or after death. So we're, we're joined this morning by our estate planning attorney, Danielle Van S of DGVE Law in Hingham. I'm in studio, but Danielle is via Zoom. Hopefully this audio all is connected and works. And also I'm joined by my husband and coworker, Kirk Reed, also McNamara Financial. So good morning, guys. You there? You with me? Good morning. morning. Tim, we got audio? 
All right, Tim's giving me a thumbs up, so we're good. This is my first time uh, Zooming live on the radio, so I'm glad this is all working. I was a little nervous about that. So um, good morning, guys. Thanks so much for being here. Um, Danielle has been on the show with us in the past. Her website for everyone, for our listeners, reference is, I believe, dgvelaw.com. Her offices are in Hingham, but I imagine as, like everyone else, you're primarily working from home these days, and your staff as well, but I know that uh, you're able to conduct business sort of as normal. So one of the things we wanted to touch on today. So Danielle, welcome. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Danielle was um, not super happy about the time that we air live 8 a.m., but um, uh, I appreciate you being here. So do you want to just give a quick uh, intro background about you and your business, uh, your law practice there in Hingham? Sure. So um, I started my firm in 2008 in Hingham, and um, we have a team of four. We are all working remotely, and we concentrate especially in wills, trusts, and estate planning, and post-death probate and trust and estate administration, also a little small business work for our small business owner clients. Yeah, perfect. Thank you so much. And Danielle's been on the show with us several times now in the past, and I've known you for years now. And um, oh, your shows are always well-received by our listeners. I've had calls into the office after your shows air uh, asking for your contact info. So um, you just have this great way about you um, and you're you're able to explain these complicated legal issues in, in ways that make sense to people. So that's wonderful. That translates really well to radio. So I'm glad you're here. Mm-hmm. Um, so Danielle and I were, were chatting prior to the show this morning and, you know, I tend to focus on what documents does everyone need? You know, in my, in my mind that the legal issues are, what does everyone need? What are the documents? What's the lineup? What do they do? And Danielle, you were so funny. You were like, well, you know, talking about documents for two hours might not make for the best radio. So, um, I, I so appreciated you saying that and, and your perspective. So it was sort of Danielle, it was Danielle's idea to sort of approach this from what is it like for people, loved ones primarily, if someone hasn't prepared their legal documents and what is it, you know, either during life and they're incapacitated or after death, what is it like for the family if someone hasn't prepared? So I think that that's a really impactful way to talk about the issue. And I appreciated you saying that obviously that's the way that you educate your clients and that makes total sense. So, um, we are live this morning, by the way, if anyone wants to ask us questions, 781-837- 4,900 will bring you right to the studio. Um, so I guess we'll just jump right in, Danielle. Uh, you know, just, I thought that this show was pretty timely just because this whole, you know, pandemic has just brought about issues of mortality to, to be quite frank. And it's a terrible thing to think about, but a necessary, a necessary thing to think about, you know, we've certainly had, uh, you know, calls from clients and contacts from clients looking to, you know, make some changes to their beneficiaries. Cause, because these things are just, it's just top of mind right now. Um, but you know, a necessary discussion. So, you know, have you seen, have you had similar contacts from your clients, you know, just sort of a new urgency to uh, estate planning? Yeah, absolutely. And um, let me say that my mind has been on all of the same things as my clients. So the empathy is real. Um, We're all living through this together. And my mind is certainly on what's happening in the world right now as well, which is another version of bringing urgency to the need for 
pre-planning. Um, I definitely received some calls from clients, but more so from new clients. We had a huge influx of new clients that had been postponing talking about or thinking about this for a long time and suddenly they were ready. Um, so fortunately, as you said, we were up and running remotely almost immediately. Um, we shut the office down on a Thursday and Monday morning we were back up for business as usual. So um, we were able to help a lot of new people start the process and start getting their affairs in order quickly. Yeah, and can, can we just actually touch on logistics for a moment? So for, you know, I know like almost every other business in the world, you've had to reinvent yourself a little bit, not in terms of what you do, but but the logistic of your, of your logistics of your business have been reinvented in the last couple of months, like everyone else. So, you know, for the listeners out there, uh, presumably most of the work can be done or certainly the discussions can be had via phone and web conference zoom or what or the like um and then when it but obviously legal document well maybe not obvious to everyone but legal documents do need to be signed in person with witnesses um and so you know uh, presumably you have put in place ways for people to do that safely outdoors you know all the precautions etc so what has been your practice have you transitioned to outdoor uh, signings. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, well, in terms of the logistics of how we're operating, our phones, our normal office phones are ringing simultaneously to all of my different team members. Um, so there's that seamless, which is nice. We had that set up quickly. Um, in terms of how we're working with clients, we already fortunately were uh, virtually paperless, or I should say paperless, less paper. Yeah. Yeah. So all of our files were already electronically synced real time between the four of us. So that was easy enough. Um, the in-person meetings, we shifted over to video conferencing. So it was kind of nice because we've wanted to figure that out for a long time and didn't bother. So this forced us to, which is actually a positive. Um, and then some of the things that we used to print a lot of papers to be able to scribble notes um, with clients and meetings, we've turned into electronic forms. So everything that we're doing at this point, clients can complete forms electronically. We can screen share to show documents we've drafted, video conferencing for all of the normal meetings, and then electronic signatures and electronic payments for everything internal for the firm. The challenge, as you said, is how do you safely sign with a pen on paper with two witnesses and a notary public present? Um, typically, there'd be four or five of us usually around a conference table, which obviously we can't do right now. So um, right away in March, we started to come up with a process so that our clients would be able to do the entire thing remotely, electronically via video conferencing. Oh. Um, including we had hoped to be able to try to do it with an electronic signature. That, so, doesn't, for you. <laughs> that doesn't fly in the legal world, does it? Well, no, unfortunately it very much did not. So um, I was actively involved with many, many people, many lawyers around the state and other um, legislators and everyone trying to figure out how could we do this safely, particularly given that some of us lawyers were sick and the clients sometimes were sick or unable to leave. So um, there was a law that was eventually passed and it allows for emergency 
process for remote notarization during this pandemic, so long as Governor Baker's order is still in effect. It expires after the emergency order is lifted. Um, we thought that we would kind of pivot to that and start doing things that way. And none of our clients have been interested in doing it that way so oh. far. Um, so we shifted again and we came up with a process. Um, we originally were thinking front porch and all these other ideas. Some people, some lawyers are doing drive-bys. Um, we ended up shifting to what we're calling now a sidewalk signing. And so we're setting up a table outside the office on the um, sidewalk right outside the office and we've already reviewed all of the documents with the clients and we basically just have them sign their documents on clipboards we swear them in the witnesses are safely distanced apart and it's a bit of a scene but the whole process um, physically in person with masks and gloves and everything else takes about 20 minutes Oh, okay. So it's actually it's been working really, really well. Everything else is kind of as usual, just far away. That's the one thing that's markedly different, but it's been working well. And, and we're, we've been able to keep things moving along for people that way. I feel like the, one of the silver linings in all of this is that people have been forced to increase efficiencies. And I'm finding that in our business as well. You know, of course, we've transitioned to more phone calls and web conferences than is normal. But even like in, you know, in the volunteer world, like I belong to some organizations and now all of the meetings are, are via Zoom. And it's incredibly convenient for everyone and every you know it's kind of it well the new normal I guess and um but but I feel like that that's some of that stuff is is probably going to stay with us well past COVID-19 and people are kind of figuring out like oh it's a lot easier for everyone to to meet via a web conference versus you know trying to get everyone in one place at one time and um, yeah, so I feel like for businesses and for people, there's a little bit, a little sl uh, sliver of a silver lining, but. Um, same, yeah, same thing, same thing with our, you know, business about, you know, we, you know, we've tried to use electronic signatures and, but we, for whatever reason, we haven't been doing it all the time, but now we've been doing it, you know, 90% of the time, you know, except for some folks that have shied away from it, but, uh, because it, because it makes sense to do it now. And, and actually now that we're getting more efficient using that, um, you know, technology, it, it is, it is good when it works. And so that, that has been a pretty nice change. Oh, business is so much, it's transacted so much easier when everything is immediate and electronic and documents, you know, just move quickly. So yeah, that is great. And uh, People are very grateful to be able to schedule. We've been flexible um, given how much extra flexibility we all need, particularly those of us with young children. Um, we've been able to accommodate people so they don't have to hire babysitters and leave the house and yeah. after work hours um, or during a lunch break. So it definitely makes it more accessible to more people with less stress, which is yeah. nice. Yeah. And I've actually started like for years, I've been thinking about transitioning some of my, like some of the discussions that I have with clients, um, uh, the educational type discussions are redundant. They're, they're, they're similar client to kind of when it, of course, advice is tailored client to client, but, but the educational information that you need your clients to have that, that a lot of that is the same client to client. So I'm, I'm just at this point where, well, now I have some time and I'm going to, you know, get a video camera. And a lot of this content can be, um, you know, done via video and, and much easily dispersed and, and 
uh, and it saves everyone time. So it's, you know, it's, it's, we're all forced into creating all these new efficiencies, which is great, I think, in the long run. I just uh, had that conversation with a client um, recently. I've also, for years now, I have been meaning to record little snippets of videos of things that I hear myself say routinely. Right. Um, and I asked a client recently, I'm using, instead of the big, like, four-foot whiteboard in my office on the wall that I normally use, I'm using a little eight-by-ten whiteboard my daughter let me borrow. Um, <laughs> it up the camera. Yeah. It's yeah. working. Um, yeah. it, but... I've, I said to this client, if I had sent you this as a video before our meeting, it was a first meeting video conference. I said, would you have watched it? And he was very funny. He said, um, maybe a 40% chance I actually would have watched it beforehand, but it would be helpful as a resource for afterwards. So yeah, um, yeah. that is definitely on my short to-do list. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we were talking a little bit about how the pandemic sort of brought up the urgency of um, for many people, you know, putting a plan together for God forbid, what if something happens to me or one of my loved ones? Um, and I just wanted to make a quick note and you can touch on that from your perspective, but you know, I just wanted to make a quick side note that, you know, for anyone that has any sort of retirement investment accounts or, or even other types of investment accounts that have beneficiaries, beneficiaries are, I don't think reviewed frequently enough by Mr. and Mrs. Investor. We, in, in our practice, we make a habit of reviewing it at least once a year with our clients, just because things change, marriages, divorces, new kids, you know, things change in the family dynamic and, um, or people that don't have kids and, and their bequest wishes change over time. And um, I think that the average person doesn't check up on their beneficiaries on investment accounts routinely at all, their 401ks, et cetera. But any retirement account should have a beneficiary named and that should be reviewed periodically. So for all of our listeners that haven't checked up on, hey, how do my beneficiaries read on my investment accounts? Great time to do so. And sometimes if you have a login well, pretty much everyone has a login to view their investments, but sometimes that information shows via the login or you can, you know, just ask your, your financial professional for that information. But just wanted to really quickly let people know that beneficiaries can be changed very quickly, sometimes immediately via website with us very quickly via an authorization on an electronic, you know, piece of paper. Um, and th that can all be done without legal work, of course. That's just a quick update with the financial institution. And that's just a quick way for people to at least make sure their bequest wishes are are carried out on their retirement investment accounts um, because I you know I just don't think people review that as frequently as they should things change in everyone's life um, obviously in you know in the world of bequest wishes for your other assets then that's when we get into discussions about uh, making sure your estate plan is up to date which is why we're here today so again thank you very much um i would just add to that Alyssa, that it's it's extremely important to make sure that the beneficiary designations on retirement accounts or co-ownership of bank accounts and things like that align with the overall estate plan. Um, and given that sometimes the beneficiaries, there are reasons why they should not be direct beneficiaries. Um, yep. It's really important to have that conversation in context of the entire plan. What is your plan to take care of your people as a starting point instead of who should I 
name on this form. Yep. What do you want to do? How do you want to benefit people? And particularly in light of the SECURE Act that in the midst of everything else in 2020, um, we've almost forgotten about it. it was burning on the brains of all of us in January and early February. And then it just kind of... Um, Felt a back burner. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, but but that has had some significant changes in terms of what the what the old advice would have been for naming beneficiaries of retirement accounts and what we what we should do now um, and what do we do with minor beneficiaries or beneficiaries who maybe are not so responsible that we can count on them doing the right thing with an inherited retirement account, um, a disabled beneficiary. So it's really important to not do it myopically, but to consider the whole picture. I love that you brought that up because Kirk, how many, if we had a nickel for every conversation we had, checking with someone regarding how are your beneficiaries supposed to read, like particularly someone that that we are aware has a trust. We are always asking, you know, how are your beneficiaries supposed to read? Is it supposed to be the designated individuals or is it perhaps supposed to be a trust? Um, Zero clients ever know the answer to that. We, we always have to uh, check with the attorney or reference the documents that they received um, at their closing. You know, pretty much everyone has the binder or the file. Um, and sometimes they have that, you know, letter explaining all that stuff. But yeah, I, we've had unlimited, I couldn't even count how many conversations we've had we've had with people. Um, and and I think it's a, it's a common misconception Maybe this is, this is a little bit different, but sometimes I'll say, well, how are your beneficiary, you know, how do you want your beneficiaries to read? Is it supposed to be the trust or, or individuals? And often people say, well, the trust names these people. So this is how it should be named. Or in my will, it names these people. So this is how it should be named. But it doesn't, those aren't one in the same thing. Uh, you know, the... the these things play off each other and they're interrelated. And sometimes um, attorneys will draft an estate plan and it, well, it's different for everyone. I mean, you're, you're better to touch on that than I am, but just because your trust names these people or your will names these people as your beneficiaries, it's not necessarily the same on your, it shouldn't necessarily be the same on your um, retirement account. So I guess long story short, check with your attorney. And if you, haven't done your legal documents, keep listening and call Danielle, right? <laughs> All right, we've got like one minute before we need to um, take a, I'm sorry, two minutes before we need to take a quick break. Anything else really quickly on that, Danielle? Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned it. And you and I um, have just started to have more opportunities to work together for mutual clients. Um, but that's something that I take great responsibility for in my practice. When I started practicing in this area of the law, it was important to me to understand how everything that I put down on paper, every legal document that I write, how is it actually going to play out in real life? practical application is so important to me. I don't want to provide people with a false sense of security. I want to make sure that what their intentions are is what actually will happen. 
So I have um, an employee who is a funding coordinator for me, an asset coordinator. So regardless of whether somebody has a will-based or a trust-based plan, we spend an extraordinary amount of time making sure that we're very clear about what all the assets are, how they're titled, and how they should be designated. And in light of the new SECURE Act, we've actually gone to drafting custom beneficiary designations instead of even just using the forms. So we love to have a financial advisor on the other side who understands understands all of this and we're able to provide all that documentation and talk so that we're working together as a team for our client. Okay. Um, on that note, we have to take a quick break. I'm Melissa McNamara-Reed. You're listening to McNamara on Money. We're chatting this morning about legal issues and things that should be top of mind, especially during a pandemic and getting your legal affairs in order. Uh, we're talking with Danielle, with Danielle Van, Van S, S, estate planning attorney, dgvelaw.com. We're just taking a quick break and we'll be right back. And we're back. Good morning. You're listening to McNamara on Money, educating the investors of the South Shore and the Merrimack Valley, 95.9 FM WATD and 980 AM WCAP. Good morning, everyone. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed, and I'm joined this morning by my husband and business partner, Kirk Reed, via Zoom. I'm in studio. Kirk's at home. Uh, And also Danielle Van S., who is an estate planning attorney based in Hingham, dgvelaw.com, for more information on Danielle. Thank you so much for being here again, Danielle. I had, I had a question for you, and and one of the one of our discussion points as we were preparing for the show was that um, <clears throat> these discussions, when it comes to thinking about your bequest wishes and what happens if you can't make a decision or if you're not here anymore, um, very difficult conversation to have with anyone, especially your loved ones, thinking about you know that those situations, and I, I would equate that to conversations regarding life insurance. You know, I have uh, lots of conversations with people about the importance of having life insurance of an adequate amount and, you know, similar conversation, not something that you want to think about, but, but, but a necessary conversation um, to be had. And I would say that most people that I meet who are over the age of 50, for example, at least have a will, you know, some of the younger people that I meet might not have done a will yet, but for the people that I meet that don't, that had never, haven't yet done estate planning documents and, you know, maybe they're older, 40s, 50s, what have you. Sometimes I'm kind of like, why, you know, why, I'm always surprised. Why, why did you never do that? And the biggest reason that I, the most common reason that I hear is we couldn't agree on who would take my kids, who would take our kids in the event of a simultaneous death. And I hear that a lot, Kirk, I don't know if you do as well, but I just wondered if you have any generic, any any advice for people in that similar situation, is that a reason to not address the issue or what are the potential solutions to that if there is no one or you can't agree? What, what, What do you advise your clients in that situation? Yeah, absolutely. So it's funny. I thought you were going to say that people don't do it because of the fear that it's such a taboo topic for Americans. We're so squeamish talking about this. Other cultures do a much better job talking about this, I find. Um, But I actually had that challenge myself when I was expecting my first child, my husband and I, um, who will be celebrating, I think it's 18 years this summer. um, we, we get along great. We had always agreed on everything. And it was surprising when that was something that was a difficult discussion for us. So I actually came up with a process to work my clients through it. 
what I find is that most of the time people are considering the same universe of people. It's not like they're wildly different people that a couple will have in mind. It's that they're prioritizing the different people in a different order based on other factors that they're ranking differently in terms of priority. Mm -hmm. For example, um, it might be that one spouse says, well, it has to be family. Of course it has to be, you know, blood family. How could you even think about anything else? And another spouse might say, well, it's important to me that the guardians for the child have similar um, kind of values and morals and life philosophy and want yeah. to raise them similar styles and stuff. Parenting styles, disciplinary styles. Um, you know, so what we, what we value most in terms of parenting and how we most want to raise our children, we tend to want to find someone that is most similarly aligned, but it's interesting. And it plays into, I think the choice of all the other people that we name to take these important roles for us in our plans. Um, the same way that some people are afraid of hurting feelings by not choosing the closest family relative. Um, people will make that choice about naming the person to manage their money. And that's not always the best choice. So um, it's important to understand that there is a way to explain your choice that doesn't have to hurt feelings that might make more sense. And do, mo do most people ask permission of that person before naming them in the legal documents. I mean, it, see, that seems like the right course of action. Kirk and I certainly did that, but I suppose people don't really have to, right? You could just... Yeah, you don't have to, but I definitely <laughs> recommend that clients do. Um, usually yeah. the first conversation that I have with my clients, I'm asking them, and occasionally someone will be reluctant to provide me a name and say, well, I have to ask them first. I say, it's okay, I'm not calling anybody right now. I'm not even gonna start drafting this document. You're not gonna sign it yet. Let's just have that conversation. And I used to ask people, um, you know, many years ago when I was first starting out, I used to ask those kinds of questions before we got together. And what I learned pretty quickly is that after we have a good conversation about it, whatever people may have had in mind initially is not always where they end up. So I don't find it to be a useful thought process in advance of talking with a lawyer who specializes in this area. If this is what you do all day, every day, you have some good advice to share that makes it easier for people to choose. So rather than a couple trying to hash it out amongst themselves, they should have the conversation with a neutral third party who can help guide them towards a good decision. Yeah, Kirk, Kirk and I mostly, I think mostly that conversation was easy for me and Kirk, his family, my family, just because of location. His his sister is on the other side of the country and it was kind of, you know, we love her to death and she'd be a great guardian for our kids. But the thought of uprooting your kids and moving them across country after you lose two parents is, you know, that's just not realistic, at least for me. So, And that's, well, that's one yeah. of those factors, certainly, that people consider also the health and the age of the prospective guardians, um, their marital and family situation. Um, you know, there's so many other factors that go into it. And that's what I mean is that some, sometimes it's easy and couples can figure it out pretty quickly, but sometimes it's prioritizing those types of factors in a different order. So for you, it might've seemed awful to uproot the kids and move them across the country. For somebody else, it might seem awful to have them um, not have that particular relationship. Sure. And, and so it's, that's the conversation. Can a it, couple, sorry, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Uh, so like Danielle, like I know like, you know, like uh, if somebody like inherits money, you know, you, you do have the option of like, 
um, you know, saying, saying I don't want it. Um, I mean, did that, can that apply in this situation where if someone is named, you know, as, as a, as a guardian or can they, can they say, I don't want to, and, and then, and then what happens? Um, yeah, absolutely. And that is, um, nobody can force you to assume any of the roles that you're appointed to. And with regard to minor children in particular, it's always going to be about the best interest of the children. So we as parents can choose who we think would be best and we should, and we should write that down. And perhaps if it's not exactly clear, um, on paper, we might want to go an extra step and explain our thought process on paper so that if we're not around to answer that question, we've already documented all the reasons why. Um, but it's always going to be up to a judge to determine what's in the best interest of the children at the time when it becomes relevant. So you always want to have a backup because the yeah. same way we're not guaranteed tomorrow, we not, might not be here tomorrow, our guardians might not be here tomorrow. So we always want to have at least one backup. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Danielle, if, if a couple just can't decide or if there is no one, it, can they proceed with the rest of the estate planning process missing that component? So I knock wood, I'm actually going to knock wood here. Um, in 13 or so years of doing this, I have not yet had a situation where we weren't able eventually to decide. Um, not deciding is worse than having it be your second yeah. choice. Yeah. So yeah. I have an exercise that I created that I do with my clients. I, I haven't had to do it in a while, um, but it's actually, you know, a, a kind of like a brainstorming whiteboard exercise that I'll do with my clients and help them get to that decision. Sometimes they can't figure it out during our first meeting and they'll take some more time and think through it. Um, sometimes I give them homework to go home with. Um, or now I guess homework to do at home and I'll explain how to do all of that. But I haven't had a situation yet where we haven't been able to come to some kind of a final resolution on that. Okay. All right, so can we get right into, um, you know, sort of what I was envisioning for the, largely for the topic of today's show was, what is it like for families, loved ones, spouses, adult kids, uh, you know, executors of, I'm sorry, personal representatives of estates, when there has been no planning, and I and I know we could you could we could approach this from lots of different angles, but but what we what attorneys call an intestate estate, which means there was no will, and right right, um, what just you know what is it like for people? I know it's not a pleasant process for you know perhaps either way, but much more difficult for families when someone that passes hasn't planned. So can you touch on that? I know you have some personal experience and also your clients. Yeah, so um, it's actually even before someone dies that it becomes really difficult and unpleasant when the person hasn't done this type of planning. If we start from thinking about during our lifetimes, while we're still living, if there's ever a situation where we become sick, where we're incapacitated, which certainly, as you said, this, this COVID-19 coronavirus is bringing that to the forefront of all our brains. Um, we need somebody who's going to be empowered to access our medical records, to talk with doctors and nurses, find out what our condition is, make choices for us if we can't communicate our own wishes. If we are not able to express what we want to have happen, somebody has to make that call. And 
people are frequently surprised that it isn't just automatic, that it doesn't just go to your house, your husband or your mother or whoever you would trust to make those choices for you. Um, and sometimes the people that look like they should be the obvious choice are not because obviously relationships and families are messy and complicated. Um, so the person that you want, it's really important that you name that person in a legal document to make it very clear that's who you want accessing all your private medical records, negotiating with insurance companies, having you admitted to a facility or discharged from a facility to bring you home, um, consenting to medical treatments or procedures. If you don't put that on paper, it's going to be harder for your family in so many ways. So what happens, like, let's say, for example, someone is sick uh, and unable to make a decision on their own, uh, incapacitated legal term. Um, let's say they do not have, let's say they're, they're married and their spouse needs access to money. And let's say it's in the incapacitated spouse's name. In absence of the legal document called the power of attorney, what is the process? I know there's there's a process of petitioning courts and obtaining legal documents uh, as quickly as possible, but I, as I understand it, not it's not really all that quick. So can you talk about what that's like for someone in that one example where there's no power of attorney, let's say a spouse needs access to money quickly and it's in the other spouse's name? Absolutely. Or a child needs access to a parent's money to pay the parent's bills or a sibling. Um, it applies kind of universally. I see that frequently, especially with my clients who came together later in life, um, either married later in life or perhaps it's a second relationship, not married. And so they just kept the account separate um, because that's the way they had been. Not for any you know, um, real reason, just kind of convenience. It just was that way you don't have access by virtue of being married to someone. You're allowed as an individual to have your own money in your own bank account and not have your spouse access it. And sometimes that's really important for people to have that ability. So it's not something that we would want to change as a blanket thing. Mm -hmm. So the way that we provide access to the people that we trust to manage all of our money if we're alive but incapacitated is through, as you said, a power of attorney. Um, without that, you would have to petition the court and become conservator of the person's assets. You'd file a formal petition. You'd have to have a hearing explaining all the reasons why that person is actually incapacitated and you should be the one that should be trusted to manage all their money. Um, right now, under the current circumstances, we've had several times where the courts have been closed. Mm -hmm. I know I had one time where I mailed a probate petition to the court and we didn't see it docketed for over a week. And I started to get that knot in my stomach, what, what happened to this en route to the courthouse. It turned out somebody had tested positive in that courthouse and they had shut it down for a few days. Wow. So, um, you know, for, fortunately it was eventually docketed, but right now we can't count on things moving very quickly. Yeah. And in an in an emergency situation, it's these legal documents that give you that immediate access and avoid delays that can lead to all sorts of problems. Yeah, and even before COVID-19, I would imagine that petitioning process took several days minimum, right? I mean, how quickly can you get on? How quickly, my daughter's on the Zoom now. You're so cute. Hi, Callie, morning. This is Danielle. She's morning. 
Um, yeah. yeah, even before COVID-19, was it, it was probably a several day, if not longer week process, right? So, I mean, it's not like you, you know, people are used to, in all in almost all aspects of life people are used to immediate gratification and immediate access to money in your bank account and even in our world you know in my, in my world in Kirk's world where people want immediate access to their accounts it's just not um, if you're not prepared to give that loved one that access legally prepared legally I mean um, it's it's just not as it's not as easy and you know another um, sort of related to this, something that that me and Kirk see frequently, common misconception is that when someone dies, the beneficiary of that account could be a spouse, sometimes uh, adult children. They they often need money very quickly as well, and they. The, you know, the money is intended for them, but it takes a period of time for, for dollars to move into that beneficiary's name. And sometimes people need money really quickly for, um, you know, funeral services and things like that. And common misconception that people, you can't access money immediately if it's not in your name. There's a process that needs to be gone through. And that process is, um, you know, in our world, it's a little bit different where, where named beneficiaries are generally on the account and things move pretty quickly. But, you know, for, for non-retirement accounts, um, you know, those things just don't move. They, they, they move much more quickly if you have done your legal planning. It's much easier for your loved ones if you have all the documents. I keep talking, going back to the documents, Danielle. But if you have everything in place, your plan in place, uh, things just will happen much more quickly. And that's what people expect. But, but uh, you have to do your planning so that your loved ones can access that money quickly and, and do what they need to do. Hi, Arden. I have daughters on Zoom. She's got some, she's got some morning hair. Good morning. Hi, sweethearts. <laughs> um, yeah. The documents um, are the solutions, right? Yeah. They're not the starting point. They're, they're what comes out of the counseling, the discussion, the, you know, well-informed choices. Once we go through the mental exercise, which absolutely it's a difficult thing to think about, but what I think is so important to keep in mind is even though this is a heavy conversation, what you get from having that heavy conversation is extraordinary peace of mind. You know that the people that you trust are the ones that are going to be responsible and that you've thought through everything. And really you're giving yourself the gift of not worrying about that, but you're also giving the people that you love the most that you most want to help and benefit the gift of not having their grief in an emergency situation or after somebody is gone um, compounded by all of these red tape frustrations and delays and um, uncertainties and um, it makes things easier for the people that we love the most. So the documents are the end result. They're just not the starting point. Right. Yeah. And, and, um, just, you know, kind of going back to your earlier, uh, our earlier discussion about, or what you brought up about, you know, during life, if someone can't make a decision that, you know, the having that power of attorney, because a, even a spouse doesn't by default have access to their spouse's money. Um, so, you know, what, for us, when someone has that power of attorney document already drafted, we try to make a habit of keeping it in their file um, so that, you know, if that if something happens and the spouse needs access or adult child needs access to 
um, the funds, if we have that document in our files, you know, it was legally prepared, it's very quick for people to have access. We can take instructions pretty much immediately. Um, and, and that person can access their loved one's money if they need it, but we have to have that, we have to have that power of attorney in place. Otherwise we can't take someone else's instruction. I, um, you know, one of the things that I sometimes see that, that makes me nervous is, you know, maybe like, uh, you know, an, an older parent, uh, you know, maybe, adds like a kid, a kid to their bank account um, because they want them to have access to it, you know, just in case and versus, you know, versus, you know, listing them as a power of attorney. Uh, and that makes me nervous, um, you know, because, you know, now you're opening up to, you know, liability of something, you know, if something happens to the, to the child, you know, if they get, you know, they get sued or something now that, you know, those assets potentially become, you know, um, accessible, you know, from, from a legal point of view, uh, or, or if the child makes a bad decision, you know, yeah, I mean, I mean that, so that makes, that makes me nervous. And I, and I feel like I see, you know, I see and hear that, you know, not, not frequently, but, but enough, enough that it makes me worried. Um, and I just, you know, that's why that, you know, to, to me, you know, the power of attorney is the, is the proper way to go, uh, versus, you know, versus, versus that, that way. I feel like the joint the joint ownership on bank accounts is like a classic example of someone trying to do their own estate planning. Absolutely. That's we call that DIY estate. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and people frequently panic when we go through all of the reasons this might not work out or I'll just name um, the other one you see all the time. You see a older parents naming their adult children as co-owners of bank accounts when they really just mean to provide convenience or to get help, which as you said, Kirk, is not the way to go with that. Um, but I also see it where people will say, well, I'm going to leave all of my life insurance or I'm going to leave this bank account to my sister because I'm naming her as guardian of my children and oh. she'll just use this money to take care of my kids. Well, I can't even start with all of the complications and problems that you just caused the person that you're asking to now take care of your children on top of that. There's a better way. Yeah, very common. We would see that as well. When someone's naming beneficiaries, they just want to name one person and that person will divide it amongst the family. Yeah, that's, I guess that would be DIY bequesting. Um, but yeah, not, not a great plan, generally speaking from a tax perspective. Um, and from a, um, not that you don't trust that obviously that person, there's a level of trust there for someone to do that, but mostly for, for tax reasons, not a great idea. Or, 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 things, or, things, or, things, or things happen and, you know, you know, when they, when they name them, everything is, you know, a certain, a certain status. And then maybe something happens in there and, you know, down the low, down the line that, you know, they're in, you know, embroiled in some kind of a, uh, you know, they get sued and, then, and now that money goes, disappears. Uh, or bankruptcy or divorce or yeah. anything. Yeah. So Danielle, if someone, how much, I, again, the courts, the courts right now, things are taking longer because of this situation. But before this, uh, for comparison purposes, how much, like I know it, t- it takes a long time in Massachusetts and probably most states to settle in a state, even if there is a will when in situations when there is not a will um how much longer does it take or does it cost more money or do people need then are hiring attorneys to to make their case like can, can you talk us through that just comparing uh settling someone's estate let's call it a will-based estate versus 
someone that has not done any planning and doesn't have a will. So let's start with the intestate. If somebody did not have a will, did not appoint the person that she wants to serve as her personal representative, formerly known as executor, um, now we call that person a personal representative or PR, um, if that person is not named, then what you have to do is petition the court rather than just to accept the will and appoint the person that was named, we have to show all the reasons why a person who's interested in serving as personal representative should be approved. And that means that anybody else who may have had priority under the law to serve has to agree to the appointment of that person. So take a situation where you have um, parents living, let's say divorced parents living in different states, siblings living in different states, and one person wants to be personal representative, now you are literally mailing around from Massachusetts. Um, and still, even under this new temporary emergency remote notarization law that we have in Massachusetts, everybody has to be physically located within Massachusetts to use that option. Um, so you're physically mailing around papers that people have to sign and have notarized agreeing that they're not going to serve as personal representative. And when they get those papers, they don't necessarily understand what it means or they're suspicious or they're concerned about it. So now they want to go and look into it, talk with um, an attorney where they are, get some advice. Then they have to get that all back. That all has to get filed together with a petition. The petition has to go to the court. Um, has to get docketed, has to, um, then the court issues a citation and orders the attorney who filed to publish notice in the local newspapers. There's an opportunity for creditors to make claims against the estate. There's an opportunity for other people to say they should be beneficiaries. And so you're talking, practically speaking, several weeks before you even file and then from the moment that you file, it had been taking about four to six weeks to get letters back from the court. Um, and now I don't know, you know, I think it just kind of depends what's happening at the moment, how long that's going to take. But um, there's definitely a delay, a significant delay. Once the person is actually appointed and gains access to all of the accounts, bank accounts, and people will start talking to you, you start to find out where everything is. You can't just start immediately distributing assets. You can't start giving things away immediately. And we see people do that. They think, well, I know that this is what, you know, she or he wanted to have happen. Well, you just can't do that if you're the person who's responsible for administering the estate. So you have to take that opportunity to find out what all of the assets were, where they are, what all of the debts are, who all the creditors are, and then you start paying things in order of what needs to get paid. So the payment to the, or the, uh, the beneficiaries are the last people to get their money because first you have to pay all of those final expenses, all the legal and administrative expenses, the court filing fees, the publication of notice to the newspaper, all the rest of that gets paid first. Taxes, you have to have a final tax return prepared, final income tax return. If it's a, in a state taxable state, you have to file an estate tax return. So it's a very long time before the beneficiaries will actually receive a disbursement of those assets. Um, I. I I want, we only have a couple minutes before we need to take a break, but I do want to get into this because when we get many questions from clients or kids of deceased clients or what have you regarding 
when can I disperse the money, number one. And um, not that's not our area of expertise. We're kind of, we'll punt that back to the talk with your attorney, um, the, the, or an estate planning attorney. But, but um, oh, I had another thought, I lost it. What was I gonna say? Um, we get questions on, yeah, when can they disperse assets? I lost it, guys. I'll think of it over the break. Well, that's, that's, I'm sorry. I was, I was, I was thrown off there for a minute because I think my Zoom was slow. Did you hear that? Like I could hear uh, Danielle talking on the headphones, but I couldn't hear you here. So sorry, technological. I'll blame. I'm gonna blame that one on technology. But I, I do, I do want to get into that. Um, oh, and maybe the other thing is, you know, people. Unfortunately, families fight all the time over estates, and, and uh, I want to talk through this a little bit more, but we do have to take a quick break. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed. You're listening to McNamara on Money. Uh, we're talking with Danielle Van SDGVELaw.com about legal issues and estate planning and planning during a pandemic. 